0: Hello, this is Daron Orenstein from best saxophone website ever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. Hello everyone and welcome to the Best Saxophone Podcast Ever from Best Saxophone Website Ever and today I'm super excited to bring to you guys one of the best alto players, most distinctive alto voices out there, David Binney and as one of jazz music's leading voices on alto sax, David Binney's musical vision is constantly shifting and expanding whether it's in the realm of playing, composing or producing. Having played with giants such as Gil Evans, Maria Schneider, Jim Hall, Brian Blade, and Mark Turner, David is also a co-founder of the hard-edged quintet Lost Tribe. He has recorded well over a dozen albums as a leader or co-leader. Influenced by masters such as Coltrane, Miles, Bobby Hutcherson, Wayne Shorter, and many others, David moved to New York at the age of 19 to play gigs and study with Phil Woods, David Liebman, and George Coleman. As a sideman, David has appeared on record with Medesky, Martin & Wood, as well as Uri Kane's Mahler Project. In the realm of popular music, he's appeared on stage with Aretha Franklin at Carnegie Hall, as well as Maceo Parker, to name just a few. He has produced all of his own albums in addition to two of the Lost Tribe releases. Of his most recent album, *Grayland Epicenter, Pat Matheny said, and I quote, Dave has long been one of my favorite musicians. This may be the most complete example yet of his incredible talent as a composer and band leader, exceptional writing and playing all around. So, with that, David, I welcome you to the podcast today.
1: Well, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I just thought I'd kick it off by asking you if you could
1: talk a little bit about how you got involved in music. Um, let's see. Well, my parents were, were... I grew up in California, in Ventura, and uh, I, my parents were not musicians, but they were into music, um, and I heard a lot of music when I was a kid, a lot of jazz, uh, especially, but my father was also into, like, Hendrix and you know, Sly Stone and people like that, so I heard that kind of music, too, and um, I just remember being really attracted to music when I was really young that it just something happened when I listened to music. I was just excited about it. And um, eventually I, I remember uh, listening to my, my parents, my sister were watching TV out in the living room. And I one I was listening in this, we had this place where the stereo was, this room. And um, I was listening to, to Coltrane, My Favorite Things. And I was listening to this guy named John Clemmer, who I don't know if you know, but he mm-hmm. was from L.A., and um, he's actually kind of credited with—it's weirdly so. Starting, he had one of the first records that was considered smooth jazz. It was huge. It was called Touch. And uh, but before that, he was like—he was like a very hard-edged, at times like free jazz tenor player. It was really weird this switch he made. Um, but I was listening to one of these early things that had like. L.A. guys on it, Wilton Felder, who was playing bass on the record. I remember. So I was going between my favorite things and, and this, I think, uh, this uh, John Clemmer record. And I just remember walking out of the room and going into the room where my parents, and my sister, were watching TV, and saying, um, "I want to play saxophone." And they said, "What?" <laughs> you know. And uh, and I said, "I, I want to play saxophone." And then within a couple of weeks. I had a saxophone and I was studying, this was in like sixth grade, I think I was 12. I was studying with this this teacher there that sort of knew a little bit about saxophone and I was beginning to play and um, actually it's funny because for the first maybe week or ten days I was playing and it was really hard for me to get a sound and the teacher couldn't figure out what was wrong. I realized after about ten days that I had the mouthpiece upside down. oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that was a auspicious start for my career but um anyway, from there i just i played for about a year I studied on um on you know uh with this teacher and everything and then for about a year i took i took off like when I was thirteen. Uh, I decided I didn't want to play. Then I picked it up again at 14 and kept, um, that was it. Once I started again at 14, I got really serious about it. And by the age of 19, I moved to New York.
0: Wow. That's That's a quick span from age 14, you know, to when you really got serious about it, to five years later already deciding to move to New York, which is a pretty intimidating place to start a jazz career.
1: Yeah. I guess so. It, uh, it, you know, I started, you know, fourteen, fifteen, when I took it really seriously. Um, like I was telling you, I was, you know, driving down. My parents were driving me down at that time, and my dad used to, where you're, you're at there, um, in the valley, Studio City, Van Nuys, Sherman Oaks, and I was studying. I also studied from this teacher in Palos Verdes, um, and, you know, I got better fast. And they also put me, when I got into high school, they put me into college, uh, Ventura College courses. So I would leave high school and go take music there. So I I kind of advanced pretty fast. And by the time I was 16, 17, 18, I was playing all kinds of gigs um, around Ventura and Ojai and like Oxnard, like used to play the Navy bases, like at Port Wyneme and Port uh, Point Magoo and, um, you know, all that. So I, and then, and then I started playing in L.A. I went, I, as soon as I could drive at 16, I used to drive down there and I hung out with some, there were friends of mine down there that are still there. My friend Steve Rosenblum who lives in, in the Valley and Matt Catangoob, who, um, who was in the Valley. I think he's still back in, the, he's, he's back in L.A. and they were sort of You know, Matt was doing really well in LA at the time, and um, you know, I used to hang out there and go to all the jazz clubs and everything. By the time I was nineteen, I knew, you know, I was out of high school. I realized I've got to go to New York. I just left, you know, because all my favorite players were basically in New York, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess it was a fast track, but I knew what I wanted to do at that point. So, cool.
0: Yeah, you know. um from listening to your albums, it's really obvious that your just entire approach to music is really unique, um, where you know, a lot of sax players, especially alto players, um, you hear tend to fall into that traditional straight-ahead jazz or bebop vein, but you've completely gone in your own unique, awesome direction. So how is it that you came to find a passion for creating music that was totally unique as opposed to following the jazz status quo?
1: Well, I mean, I think that I've always wanted to just be... Even when I was younger, I was thinking about this. It was always natural for me to just always want to be different and not sound like someone else. That was just always natural to me. I think I always thought that everybody thought that way. And um, and so I was always trying to push to, to do my own thing, try to sound a certain way. At the same time, I was studying, and still do, all the... Um, you know, the masters and play standards and you know practice all the two five things and all that stuff um you know but all but never to sort of present that because I, I felt like it you know it was done already and it was done much better than I could do it by a lot of the people who who invented that stuff, and I thought you know, i for me, it's just more interesting to do something that try to do something that was a little bit more original. So something that I haven't heard, you know, I'm always trying to do something that I want I, I would want to hear as a listener, but something that I don't I don't hear, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's always been my interest as a player and and a composer and producer and everything, you know? hmm Just was natural for me. I'm I'm not sure why. That was just the way I've always thought. You know? Mhm. Cool. Yeah, I mean,
0: you had that group Lost Tribe, and you guys were incredibly original. It's kind of like uh, hard rock and avant-garde jazz coming together. With your alto is like the lead voice along with the guitar. So, um, can you talk a little bit about the concept behind how that band came to be?
1: Yeah, that was um, that was uh, Adam Rogers, Ben Perowski, and Fima Ephron, which were. Um, the core of that band, they had started a a band with Joey Calderazzo. Actually, was playing piano, and um, there was a club up here where I live now, in the in the in the, on the Upper West Side of New York, on ninety around ninety fourth Street in Columbus, called McKell's, and um, it was a famous club here. A lot of people used to play there, and they were playing there, and I had met Adam Rogers and. Uh, ben, I think we had started we had played a couple little gigs together and anyway, I went to their gig and um, I sat in with them and for some reason they, they really liked it and I think Joey was about to leave the band or something they had just started so they just decided to keep it together with me and then we added another keyboard player different keyboard players before we settled on David Gilmore which was my idea um, as the second guitar player um, but it just sort of developed as this band that we did want to. Tr- we were trying to bridge, you know, all the rock and funk and all that sound with jazz and um, and you know we Ben Porowski had sent a tape at that time a tape to um, to um, uh, what's his name Walter Becker from Steely Dan. Who was lo- who was starting a label, and he was looking for a band that he described in that exact way because um, Ben Porowski had done a record that he was producing for Ricky Lee Jones, and so Ben just gave him this tape, and and Walter Becker really liked it. We ended up, so they ended up signing us to this label, Wyndham Hill, and we went to Hawaii for like two and a half weeks to Walter's house, and recorded this record on the side of a mountain in this. Uh, <laughs> at Walter's studio, and it was, yeah, it was great, and it it became, you know, it was a pretty popular band, I mean, um, we sold a lot of records, and we toured a lot, and uh, we kind of doubled up with Modesky, Martin & Wood when they were first starting, we went on one kind of famous tour, I mean, amongst friends here, there's all kinds of stories, it's a long story, but we went on like a a six-and-a-half-week tour. 14,000 over 14,000 miles in North America with Mendesky, Martin, and Wood. And uh, within those six and a half weeks, I mean, hysterical times and crazy times and you know, fighting and <laughs> just nuts. But it was, um, it was fun. And it's kind of started, you know, when the band was together basically for almost 10 years, I think. We did three albums, we we're about to do a fourth, and the record label sort of. Was hemming and Hine, and we ended up deciding to just break up rather than deal with the record company so um yeah that, but it was a good it was a good experience it got me touring got me i had at, up to that point had not toured and um it's you know i toured a lot with them so and we're all still friends you know i'm good friends i still play with adam a lot especially um uh, it was an important band for me you know got me composing you know yeah so yeah
0: it sounds like it put jazz um in front of a lot of people who may have not ever really listened to jazz before who may have not heard it otherwise it sounds like you were kind of on the jam band circuit a little bit
1: well it you know it was the beginning of the jam band circuit because um you know that came out of you know, I mean, Grateful Dead were, you know, that was, I guess, the ultimate jam band, but that when when they started, when uh, Jerry Garcia died, and the whole, um, you know, that thing went, there was all these bands that came out of that, and that became the jam scene, and we were just before that, like Dave Matthews' band was touring with, we would play all the same venues, like Dave Matthews was, like, when we were on those tours, he was always ahead of us, or behind, behind us, and there were a lot of those bands out there, um, and Medesky-Martin Wood was just starting, and they got very popular. We were popular, too. The problem, I think the difference was with, uh, with us was we argued amongst ourselves a lot, and we couldn't really keep the business thing together as was needed. Like, Medesky-Martin and Wood had somebody working for them, this woman who traveled with them, and they had their own RV, and they just spent all the time on the road, and they had T-shirts and all this stuff. We didn't have any of that, and we were arguing, and it just didn't bode well for the, the future as far as the commercial aspect of it. But musically, I think it was way ahead of all of those other bands, to be honest with you. And um, and, uh, I, it was obviously, I think if you listen to it, it was obviously... Way ahead of it, but uh, in a way, it was uh, that band. I realized was way ahead of its time in general because I've I've given that those records to some of the young musicians in New York who really, really love it. And there was a lot of people who copied that that band and stuff afterwards, but and and then became more popular with it. But when we came up, I think it was actually it kind of it was a little too new for for the scene then, and I think people didn't know how to deal with it. Soon after that, like I said, there were bands that were doing similar things that got a lot more attention. I think eventually, but um, it was a little bit ahead of, it, of ahead of its time, actually. And uh, by the time we could have really hit, we were arguing so much about stuff we just broke up. You know, um, uh, even like I said, we're all still friends, but it, it you know it was just it was hard socially that band. Um, business wise and, business-wise. and uh, musically it was great mm-hmm. but anyway it was you know and we were all at that point when we broke up I was already recording solo records and everything anyway and I was interested in just doing my own thing at that at that point you know mm-hmm. so. yeah that was a very cool band <laughs> so yeah, it's a cool band it was a lot of people kind of wish it would have gone longer and they still ask for us to play and we've played a couple times we played once a number of years ago at the 55 bar did a gig and you know it just it worked musically to a point but it was still it still it was was hard to get along on the other level so um, it just I I didn't I didn't want to keep going with it It, it, it put it back together or anything um, I love all those guys and stuff but you know I just want to do my own projects and stuff at this point I think but yeah, it's probably, we would have gotten along and really seen what it was, we probably could have done a lot more with that band, you know. Yeah. And I liked it when David Gilmore was in it, too, you know. Gilmore was in it for probably five of those years. And, um, you know, I like that two guitar thing. And then the last record we did, which I really like, actually, but we didn't have Gilmore on it. And I don't know, I sort of missed that aspect to it, you
0: know. Mm. Well, you probably wouldn't have gotten to explore as much uh, territory as you have with your own groups had that band continued to go on.
1: So, yeah. no, exactly. That was that. <laughs> it. It's like those kind of bands when there, there, uh, there's no um, leader. Those are hard. Those are difficult to uh, to keep together. It's much easier to keep together something that has a defined leader, you know. And and I. I just you you can't really do exactly what you want to do and and that to a, after a point to me was not you know it's not interesting anymore. I wanted to do exactly. I, mean, I wanted to make records exactly the way I, I wanted to make them. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: so you know I got into that's where I put all my energy at a certain point and then you know I've done I don't know how many under my own name you know besides the L- and Lost Tribe, play 15 or 16 under my own name you know wow so yeah well cool
0: um honing in a little bit more specifically on your approach to the instrument um it's clear that you you know have not only an original approach to music but also to your specific instrument in the alto um you know, a lot of alto players do tend to play, or at least that I hear, have a lot of that bebop thing going on. It's obvious that's part of your playing, but you also have a very modern, angular approach, and, and your sound is unique to yourself as well. Um, so my question was, was coming up with this original voice on the instrument something that you sort of worked towards and formulated, or did it just kind of naturally come just as a natural outgrowth of your musical development?
1: That's a really good question because most people don't ask that question. <laughs> I usually, I usually answer that even when it's not asked because I think it's an important thing. So that's a very good question. Um, I think, I think that people think about originality. I think people who are original at things or try to, you know, I think it's, it's thought about. I think it's, um, it, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you you either have an originality or you don't, or I don't. I don't agree with that. I think there's a, there's a, a little bit of that. You know, somebody has an originality. I think it's more accurate to say that somebody has the ability to think about being original, or they don't. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But but I think that it's it's a it's a a conscious decision to to say okay, I'm going to try to be original i'm going to try to not sound like this person i'm going to try to not write like this i'm going to try to take these influences and make them my own um you know there's there's a lot you know there's that whole thing where you know people study and emulate people and i forget that whole uh line that happens but um but I can hear it with somebody like say one of my heroes like Wayne Shorter or something. If I listen to early Wayne Shorter, like with Blakey or something, he sounds a lot like Train at times, like to the point where it's you can tell he's he was really checking him out. And um and later on, you can even hear like a lot of Stan Getz and stuff in Wayne Shorter, which, you know, I think he'll even say that he was really influenced by those guys in Lester Young. Um and then there are, but at a certain point you just start to hear him become Wayne Shorter until now if you hear Wayne Shorter it's Wayne Shorter that's what you hear you know but I mean you can listen to at any different at different points in his career and you can hear where he's kind of shedding um those influences and and I think that's a conscious decision I think that's um I know when I moved to New York that I had a lot of um things from different saxophone players that I was listening to and and having to to imitate because at the time saxophone was used in a lot of pop music and so I was getting hired to play on on people's records and stuff or little jingles and then everybody would say you know sound like David Sanborn or sound like Clarence Clemens or you know so I was trying to to sound like that and I mean I could sound like that I could still sound like that if 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 I somebody says it you know um but at a certain point some of those things became part of my what I was doing on my own and I at a certain point I realized I didn't like that and that I needed to get rid of those things so I would record myself and and listen and and then work at getting rid of those um those things that I did and and then with the um the the bebop stuff and 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 all that i i came up completely different than most people that you'll talk to um i never memorized any solos or transcribed anything not ever not at all not once mm-hmm. and the, most people can't believe that but um i had teachers in la um that didn't believe in it even back then and they were not you know one of my teachers is a guy named don rafael who was a Studio guy in L.A. who played in Nelson Riddle's band and played with Frank Sinatra and sounded like Stan Getz, but um, he uh, somehow had this thing that he he didn't believe in transcribing and and um, and all that. And most of my friends were studying in L.A. with a guy named Charlie shoemaker Do you know who that is? Mm-hmm. So, and Charlie, who was teaching in L.A. and was and he was all about transcriptions and memorizing solos. So they were all doing that and I was doing this thing where I was just learning the harmony and listening a lot and then I would write out he'd have me write out my own solos based on on you know what the chords were and everything um but invent my own lines and um and 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 yet still not memorize my own things that I wrote out but I would write out things and then I was reading um solo books which I still do a lot of I would read everybody—the Omni book, the every solo book I could get my hands on, including a lot of trumpet books, um, which is a good thing to do, by the way, for saxophone players because uh, they, it gives you a different kind of technique. Because trumpet, you know, their the lines don't necessarily fall comfortably under the saxophone fingerings, so it's a good mm-hmm. thing to play those. Uh, so I was playing. Out of, and reading all these solos, so the sound was entering my head. And listening, I was having listening to Clifford Brown and Sonny Rollins and Dexter Gordon was like one of my heroes. And I was listening to all that stuff. Besides Charlie Parker, Cannonball was you know one of my all time heroes. Um, but I wasn't memorizing any of it, and I never have. So so I never, I don't have the ability to to pull out licks and memorize 251 things and all that stuff because if I wanted to do that I couldn't do it because it's I'd never memorize them so whatever I played had to be uh, at least what I was coming up with even if it was influenced by hearing that music but um, it, it wasn't literal because I never even bothered to learn to learn it because uh, my teachers made a conscious effort to to, to tell me not to you know and that that was i think that was in when i look back at it that was an original way to teach and it was an original way to learn which i think is also an important thing is to create your own practice routines be as original with that as you're trying to be with your your um soloing or composing or whatever you're doing but but that's that it starts with your practice routine you know so i think that that's I mean, that might be interesting for your listeners is that I I had that route, which is very unusual, you know, at least from my experience talking to students and all my peers and friends, you know. Yeah,
0: that's really original. Um, It it makes total sense. It's just both, you know, the transcription route and the writing out your own solos route, those uh, are both... uh, really different but they uh they both have incredible merits so uh it'd probably be interesting for people to try both and, and see what's most inspiring
1: yeah there's no one way to do anything i mean a, a lot of my friends i mean my best friends are some of the best saxophone players in the world and uh they have a completely different route you know they they've gone a completely different way than than i i have you know i i, I tell a story because i remember doing um, Mark Turner was touring with my band, and we were in Canada doing a clinic. Me and Mark were doing a saxophone clinic at the University of Toronto, or maybe it was Humber, actually in Toronto, Humber College. But um, but you know, we were in front of the saxophone players and and uh, describing you know different ways that we we do things, and it couldn't be more opposite. I mean, we were laughing with at, at, at each other because one of us would say something, and the next guy would go well that's not how i think of it at all and this is how i think of it and then we'd have this a whole other approach but i think it was a really good clinic because um you know people could see that here are these two people who play together and play well together and and create music that and thinks along the same lines as far as what music should sound like in in you know in their view whatever and yet have this completely different way of uh, approaching it and they could see that firsthand in this class and I always thought that that was one of the best clinics uh, that we that I've done because it was just so opposite Mark has you know Mark has things that he memorizes that you know things that he comes up with but things he memorizes that when he can't think of anything to play. He'll start playing these things that he's memorized, which is, you know, really amazing to me because I, you know, I think of improvisation as just being it's got to be something that's in the moment and you know coming from whatever the band's doing or whatever is I'm inspired to play. And here's Mark, who's one of my easily my top two, at least, uh, improvisers in the world who has all these worked out things that if if he's not inspired to play something he pu- he pulls out these things that he he's memorized and yet he just knows how to make that be spontaneous and creative and lead him into some other amazing stuff and it's so there's no one way to get to to do anything it's just i have this one way that i've done it and it's just it's totally different than than other people basically there's not many people i know who've learned this way and i attribute that to my to my teachers my young teacher you know when i was young you know i um, in la which mm-hmm. is surprising to me in a way that's
0: awesome yeah um now i'm inspired to just try writing out some of my own solos so
1: you know i didn't i i wrote out solos and lines uh you know but i didn't it's not like I spent years doing it. It's just how I started to learn how to you know, they would tell me how to get from chord to chord and you know, how to approach things by half steps above or half steps below, um going to strong tones, going to roots, thirds, fifths, um you know, to ground. You know, I I I learned all of that stuff um by doing it, by writing them out, writing little lines out myself and 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 that kind of thing, rather than studying the way somebody else did it. I guess that's the way I should explain it, rather than I wrote out my own solos. I didn't really write out my own, com- maybe once I wrote out a complete solo, like a chorus or two on a tune, but I mostly wrote out, just like I would write out a, a few lines or maybe a chorus on something and, um, and and follow these sort of rules that my teacher was telling me to um, every once in a while hit these strong tones on strong beats and um, in between you know they would tell me any note is good you know I, I know now sometimes students are taught that there are these avoid notes or whatever I think it's a Berkeley thing but um, I was doing a clinic in Spain a few years ago and these people started to ask me and the sheet weights about avoid notes and I had no idea what they were I was like <laughs> avoid notes like well, that to me goes against everything that improvisation is there's nothing to avoid Um and they had, the, I guess, Berkeley and some books have these things about notes you're supposed to avoid. I, uh, my teachers, even back then in the 70s and early 80s, were, were not ever talking about avoiding anything. They, they were saying anything is good any time, but uh, you know, if you want to ground your ear or the listener's ear to where the harmony is, you should know how to hit these strong tones on these strong beats. And you can you can aim for them, you know, and in, I learned how to, like, go three, four bars, um, and play what I wanted to play, but kind of key in and out of the harmony in a strong way every once in a while so that it outlined the harmony in that way. Um, that's the way I was sort of thinking back then. Later on, I I, I think I studied it more literally so that I was arpeggiating everything inside and out, whatever, but I still never, I wasn't studying uh, anybody else's solos to figure that out. I don't, in my way of thinking, there's no need, I think listening is really, really important, and and anyone who knows me knows me as one of the biggest listeners of all kinds of music that there is, Um, so absorbing that way is very important, but I think as far as studying what everybody else did, I, I don't see the I don't see the need for that at all actually Mm -hmm. Uh, I really don't care how somebody else got to what they got to um, technically I care about it emotionally I hear it aesthetically I listen for all those choices but I don't really care how they did it on paper I, I don't it doesn't matter to me I don't think a lot of the great improvisers were thinking that way in the first place and they certainly weren't trying to copy each other Um, and there's a lot of proof of that I think things have changed now but I've, you know, again with Masheat Waits, his father was a famous drummer Freddie Waits played a lot of Blue Note stuff and, you know, he grew up with a lot of these guys in his house, you know, whether it's Monk or whatever and those guys were always challenging each other to not sound like oh, you stole my stuff last night I heard you play this, I heard you play that and they get mad at each other and have arguments. And that's completely different than what a lot of young people do now. It's like they're trying to sound like the next person, like I can do this and you, you, oh, I'll, I'll and, you know, they try to, who knows the most tunes or memorize the most solos. And it just goes against everything that the masters sort of were thinking. And yet they, I think, somehow think that the masters were thinking that way, that they're copying them in some way um and it's it's actually complete couldn't be more further from the truth and I, so i think that i i'm i try to to kind of carry on that tradition that i'm trying to be original in that way and yet listen i listen constantly to i still all but i listen all the time to you know a lot of alto players um I listen to everything but if we're talking saxophone website i mean you know i listen to a lot of um Paul Desmond and, and uh, Johnny Hodges and Art Pepper and uh, um, Cannonball. And uh, my, some of my more obscure favorites when I was younger were like, I, I was a complete Gary Bartz freak. I still love Gary Bartz. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's a couple of obscure records, really obscure records, that I think are genius. Like a, There's one called Juju Man that's really hard to find, although you can find it on blog sites now but um, it's never come out in CD I don't think he plays a version of Straight Street the Coltrane tune and the, so that solo I almost loved that solo and uh, I think if you listen to it I mean people listen to it they can hear I I I got a lot from that without ever transcribing it or whatever there's similarities there in his sound and his approach to things and I I think that he had a lot to do with where I was coming from but, you know, at that time when I was younger. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things like that that I'm listening. But I, yeah, I never wrote out the stuff, and no, and I don't care. I don't really care what they're playing. It doesn't it really doesn't concern me. You know, and it's a lot of waste of time for me to figure out exactly what they're playing because I'm more interested in spending my time figuring out what I'm going to play. You know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a that's a cool way of thinking about it. So very, very cool. Very cool. I was gonna um, ask you though, when it, um, on the topic of improvisation and finding your own sound, um, it's clear that you have a really deep sense of harmony just from hearing what you're composing and the types of lines you play in your solos. And I was wondering if you could share just, you know, a few tips for sax players who a lot of us are obviously less harmonically versed than a, a piano player. Like some of your tips to how you're, you've are you been able to find such a rich harmonic vocabulary.
1: Well, um, again, that's a, that's a, something that, you know, I, I had teachers who who believed um, that you need to really learn the basic harmony of of every chord and, and the chord scale relationship uh, inside and out, um, but didn't believe in using anything other than other than that. And like nowadays, I, I mean, people are talking about, "I'll oh, play play this scale, i this degree, play this." Uh, you can use this over this. I, I, I never, I didn't have teachers who believed in that, and I, I never used that. I, there was only one little rule that Phil Woods told me that it's basically a very simple thing that basically anyone in jazz sort of uses on like a two-five-one on the 5 chord using what most people consider altered but what Phil Woods calls the bebop thing was uh, using a melodic minor scale a half a step up so if you're using you're playing a D7 and a, that's the 5 chord in the two-five-one, 5 one you, you could use a E flat melodic minor on that and it's a very bebop sounding way to get to the uh, to the root, to the one chord. Um, you know, that was the only rule that I ever sort of took to heart and practiced because it seems so much a part of that language. And um, and I learned learned that, but as far as alternate scales on chords and stuff, I never think about that way. I never thought of modes. People write sometimes a modal thing, that, uh, they'll say, you know, there'll be a thing that says you know, D Phrygian or something, and I still to this day I don't know Phrygian. I don't even know what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, you know, I never. My other teacher was like, ah, oh, forget about those mode things. You know, other than Dorian, I mean, you know, and the, I guess to some degree Lydian, but uh, I I thought of it as a different in a different way. I thought of it as um uh, just the scale. We use Dorian minors in in jazz, but um, other than that, you know, I, if I saw a major chord with a plus eleven, you know, uh, plus, that's what I thought of it as. I thought of the major scale with a plus eleven. I didn't, I didn't think of it as a, in in a modal way. Um, I, you know, when the, when a chord is altered, I think of those alterations just being directly related to the to the major scale um, uh, to whatever scale the chord is. Do you know what I mean? So it's. Mm-hmm. it's it's very literal. So I, I learned those scales and those chords inside and out. And other than that, everything that I play is, is using my ear. It's improvisation. So um, that's the whole point. So I, I don't feel that I need to know any more than what the actual harmony that's being played is to, to lead me to play a solo. I don't need any help in you know knowing three different alternate scales I can play on a chord. Why would I want to know that? And my, the way I think about it is, is that's just going to lead me to sounding like I'm playing three other scales on a chord. I, I would rather just know what my bass is and, and what I can always come back to as a safety zone. Again, the same thing as I was talking about leading tones, going to strong tones, root third, fifth. Uh, from a half step above or half step below that sort of thinking um, uh, is the same way i'm thinking about harmony it's like i'm thinking of here are the strong tones if i need to anchor my solo or give the listener something to really grab onto as far as where i'm at harmonically in a song or whatever i'm going to start playing with those tones or really outlining the chords or scale in a in a really much in a defined way, but other than that, I'm uh, I'm using my ear to create melody, and I don't care if that's what the scale tones are in relation to what I I'm not thinking that way. I'm when I'm playing something, it's it's thinking about the melody. I'm mm-hmm. not thinking, oh, here's I'm playing this. It's a flat five to a flat nine to a you know. Third major third. to I'm not thinking that that way, and a lot of people I think do. And I'm just thinking this is this melody. I'm hearing this like la 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 over this, and then if I need to get back to a safety zone, I know where I am in the tune, and I'm I'm keying in. I'll I'll play the fifth here. I, like I'll I'm not even thinking fifth, but I can I can instantly it comes to me. I'm thinking that we're in A, and I'm going to play an E now. You know, whatever. um and and that's going to ground my ear and the listener's ear to the harmony that we're playing at that moment. But the rest of it is it's all by ear. And and what my my intent, my thing is and my now uh, what I work on and what I'm trying to get better at every time I play is just expanding my ear. Um, it's not expanding my harmonic knowledge. It's not it's not any of that. It's expanding my ear. That's what I concern. I feel like I've learned the harmonic knowledge that I need for improvisation, and I I don't feel like I need any more information than what I've learned when I was a lot younger. Um, I've concerned myself with just being able to to say something different with that information and, and keep expanding that and using different sounds and different you know uh, that's my concern and that's hopefully what I'm doing i think it is what i'm doing because i feel like i'm improving with that every time i make a record or when i'm playing gigs i, I can feel it you know mhm that's what i'm thinking
0: yeah i mean i think uh that's a great description of the process um i think at least for me sometimes when i hear a modern style sax player play a solo Sometimes my first thought is, oh, they're playing some harmonically advanced stuff here, but I think a lot of that is also melodically, um, just the types of intervals you're playing and the the shapes of the lines, um, they're a little bit more modern, so I think a lot of what I might be hearing is a unique melodic approach, but it still sits pretty squarely within the harmonic structure of the tune.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm dealing with the harmonic structure of whatever I'm playing. Um, I'm forgetting about it uh, uh, often. Um, the thing is, I I'm not sure that, you know, I I think that there are, there are certain players that are doing that maybe, but a lot of players, and especially again, a lot of, I think younger players sometimes are so concerned with these other alternate things that I'm not hearing sometimes the sort of inspired melodic things. I'm hearing a lot of technical and harmonic um, knowledge but I'm not hearing music sometimes and you know I think I'm just trying to get to the music but I think that it may it may come across to people who as like some advanced harmonic thinking like I'm thinking that way because people are trying to figure it out and I think if you do, if somebody does figure it out and figures out what I'm doing and writes it all out and, and writes a book about it it becomes an advanced harmonic knowledge <laughs> you know mm-hmm. but it's it it isn't that in its true form it's i mean or it's just semantics really you can call it whatever you want i'm just trying to create instantaneous composition something that makes me feel good feel something what the, that makes the audience uh react to in some way that's uh emotional whatever that may be if it's sad or happy or that's really my only concern. I'm not really thinking about anything other than that, and and I'm thinking about when to play and when not to play. I'm thinking about interaction with the other guys on stage. Um, you know, uh, that's a huge one, or how that all works together. But I'm looking at it with a broad overview from sort of above the stage or above the thing. It's not. um... I'm not thinking. Um, in that smaller way of like I'm playing this scale over this <laughs> and play this I'm just that's that just seems that seems like a student thing to me and I understand that I mean you know you can you have to go through that phase but I think the ultimate goal is is it's just uh, to make music it's just the way people are describe things to try to get to something that's emotional it could have been described a million other ways. It could have been. There could have been a million other directions it could have gone to describe how to improvise over songs. We've chosen one sort of one kind of way, but that's that's not that doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, it's just that that's just a way to learn the basics, and, and uh, the goal is to to make music, you know, and be emotional. That's the ultimate goal. That's what everybody should be thinking about, and not very many people are. I think, unfortunately. I mean, that's what I hear when I listen to a lot of the, recurrent current jazz stuff.
0: You know. Yeah, it's it's easy to get caught up in the
1: details and exactly, but that has a lot to do with the the school the school situation now. I mean, you know, um, which is great on some level, but on another level, it's it's gotten a little out of hand with. I think somebody needs to tell tell the students a little more often what the whole point of what they're learning is. You know, wh- wh- why they're learning all this all this information. It's not it's not to learn the information. That's not the point at all. That's ridiculous actually. Mm-hmm. Kind of laughable in a way to me. But it's that that's just it's only supposed to be a means to uh, some future creativity.
0: Mhm. Absolutely. Well, David, this has gone by so quickly, actually. I've got a ton of other things I could have asked you, um, but...
1: <laughs> I'm sorry we're... I tend to talk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> no, it,
0: it was great stuff. It was. I, I've been taking a bunch of my own notes, and um, I've really gotten a lot, of, a lot of great information out of this. So we do have to wrap it up at this point, but uh, I always like to leave people with uh, sample of music from my interviewee and uh, today uh, we're going to be leaving everyone with your tune Everglow off the most recent album Graylin Epicenter and uh, with that I just wanted to thank you so much for your time.
1: Well thanks, Uh, you know, it's uh, it's nice to do, it was a good interview and I look forward to uh, checking the site out a lot more and you know, thanks for asking me to do this.
0: All right. My pleasure. Thanks, David. And here we go with Everglow off of David Binney's most recent album, Grayland Epicenter.